trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is about that little three pound organ that sits in between our ears that we are beginning to appreciate more and more about how it affects performance and maybe just as much if not more so than the physiology itself on the podcast today is Dr. Scott Fry. Dr. Fry is an internationally renowned neuroscientist and psychologist. He's an accomplished endurance athlete in his own right. He's an author, a teacher, and a true expert and pioneer in the field of neuroscience. During the podcast today, we discuss our relationship with pain, how perception of effort is formed, and how the duration of ultramarathon events sometimes fools our perception of effort and strategies ultra runners can use to train for and cope with race day effort related pain. This is a podcast where the content and knowledge itself, almost without further intervention, can have a direct and immediate impact on your race day performance. I hope you appreciate this conversation with Dr. Fry as much as I did. And as with every podcast, I'm getting immediately out of the way with no ads, no sponsors, just good old fashioned knowledge bombs to deliver to you guys. All right, here it is. This is my conversation with Dr. Scott Fry. I have to say right off the bat, I've been kind of anxious about recording this ever since we set it up on the calendar. And part of it is it's the, I'm, I'm classically trained from the physiological side, as you've probably run into with a lot of coaches that are my age, you know, I'm 44, oh, yeah. I'm 44 now. And that was the bias, you know, 15 years ago, certainly it might even be the bias now, but, but I also feel that when we talk about like the brain, it's just this mysterious organ in between our ears. And then we, when yeah. we talk about neurophysiology or when we talk about like neuroscience, it's like this blend of biology and chemistry and physiology and philosophy and what it really means to be in this like human experience and how authentic is that experience. And whenever I try to like literally like wrap my mind around it, I can't. (laughs) So so speaking to people like you, like I said, a combination of those two things, it it just kind of like, like I said, it, it raises my level of anxiety for recording these things. Well, we're going to make it easy. Uh, we, you know, I, I'm right on board with you in the sense that uh, I've been at this brain thing professionally for 30 years. In fact, 30 years ago, I became, uh, I had my first faculty job and I've worked all over the country, University of Oregon, Missouri, Dartmouth, uh, UMass. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm still in awe of the brain every single day. And the fact that my brain is sitting here talking to your brain is kind of still hard for me to believe. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned a lot of different roles that you served uh, professionally so that the audience can get to know you just a little bit better and kind of expand yeah. on the, the intro that I'll record after the fact. Sure. G- give us just a b- brief background of your academic career And then also what your new venture is, because I'm actually quite interested in this professionally, because I think there'll be a lot of commonality there. Yeah, wonderful. So for the last 30 years of my life, I've been an academic uh, psychologist and neuroscientist. I have a degree, a PhD in experimental psychology and did a lot of work in uh, human behavior and neuroscience. 
when the these amazing new technologies became available in the 1990s to image brain activity, functional MRI in particular, I went back, left my tenure track job, went back to being sort of a student, a post uh, doctoral student and uh, learned those new technologies is, uh, and really spent about seven years up at Dartmouth College learning how do we study brain uh, anatomy and brain activity when people are engaged in different kinds of cognitive activities and perceptual activities and motor activities. And uh, that was something I continued forward and went to the University of Oregon, you know, great school for running. Um, and I ran, uh, not only was I a faculty member there, but I directed their research brain imaging center. And then finally was recruited to the University of Missouri to do a very similar task, help build this center up and, and, uh, um, run it there. And my own research interests have always been centered squarely in how does the brain plan and control our actions in the world? And then the flip side of that, how do our actions, our behaviors reshape that brain? So that's been my focus. Uh, and, and most of the work that I've done has been published in the academic theater, but I've also had a role writing um, and doing some consulting. I consulted at the Olympic Training Center in the 90s for the uh, fledgling effort to build a uh, coaching credentialing system for USA Triathlon. Uh, I think it was called TriFed back then. And then I, um, I've also did some writing for a magazine at the time called Inside Triathlon, which was one of the original triathlon magazines. My last name at the time was Johnson. I changed it to Fry, which is my mom's maiden name, uh, to keep that that name alive. So, uh, so that if people wanted to look for that stuff, that's where they would look for it. And I've started a new business. I decided that I, uh, I needed to, to break it up and have some new challenges. So after 30 years in academia, seeing all these wonderful opportunities to connect science with real world applications in the, in the area of mental performance, uh, I, I decided to leave my academic post and, and I started a, a company called cerebralperformance.com. And it's through that company that I'm going to try to really put neuroscience into action. And when you say put it into action, is it along a specific like cohort of people? Are you talking about athletes or like high performers in business or the military? Are you going to try to like gather them all and use the same techniques across all those different people? Yeah, I'm most excited to work with uh, people like you and me who are uh, athletes and also have complex multifaceted lives that we're interested in performing well in. And uh, in order to perform well in those various roles, we have to uh, have an integration of those things. So we're really different perhaps than, you know, uh, a professional athlete who can focus all of their energy for a relatively brief period of time in most cases on just doing that and recovering. I'm really interested in the folks who are, are seeking uh, to balance their athletic performance with their performance uh, in their other roles of life as well. I think you're going to get a lot of business because it is a tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of interest in that area right now, as I'm sure you're very well aware of. And I've always felt, I'm going to steer this back to our audience. I've always felt that ultra runners are like the perfect guinea pigs for this stuff because it's an event that's long, it's arduous. There's a lot of time to quote unquote, be in your head. And there's a lot of more particular from the performance perspective. There's a lot of uh, the performance context 
that can't be explained by the traditional physiological routes. Muscle fatigue and glycogen depletion and task management and things like that. And whenever that's the case, we kind of come back to, you know what, the, the brain has a large role in these types of performance outcomes. But before we get to this, one of the things that I've really appreciated about hearing you speak and, and reading a lot of your work is the way you're able to kind of simplify the way that the way that this mysterious organ, as I described it earlier, actually works. And the fact that it's a, a prediction machine is the way that I've heard you talk about it before. Can you describe the audience with like what you mean by that and why we can view the brain in this very specific and, and somewhat simplified role? Yeah. So the way I like to think about it is that our behavior, right, whether it's running an ultra or having this conversation is really a product of three different things. There is all of the sensory feedback that we're getting, right? The sights, the sounds, the smells, the body sensations that we're getting. That's being used and integrated by the brain along with our past experiences, right? What do we know about being in this particular context? You do a lot of podcasts. I've been doing some podcasts. I kind of know how it goes. I'm getting a sense you really know how it goes because you're a pro and an expert. In this. <laughs> well, you've got a lot more experience than I do, Jason. So um, so that's the second thing, right? We've got experience uh, and, and that helps to contextualize what we can expect this to be like, right? And then the final thing, and this gets left out all the time, is that the brain is constantly trying to predict what's coming next. Now, people who study movement know a lot about this, right? That on a subconscious level, when you control a movement, just imagine a stride and running. It's not just a matter of using sensory feedback, right? Because the brain requires time to process that, right? There's a lag in those neural impulses as they yeah. move for the brain, just like there would be in, uh, in electrical impulses in a wire. You don't want to be waiting for that feedback to be adjusting your gait to jump over the log that's in the trail in front of you. You've also got to be compensating that gait in a predictive way. So we're, but that is a kind of a, a little practical example that hopefully your audience can relate to. Um, it's happening in the background. You're not thinking about that for the most part. We're doing that all the time. We're constantly integrating all of the sensory information we're getting with our past experiences and using that information along with uh, with uh, other cognitive sorts of things that we built up over time to try to predict what's gonna happen next. That's the prediction machine. And a lot of this big wrinkled cerebral cortex that, that humans have in such abundance is devoted to doing just that. So within this prediction model or this prediction machine that you've described, if we boil it down into athletic an athletic context, and we can take the whole swath of athletic context, whether it's a mixed martial arts fight, which I'm a big mixed martial arts fan, all the way to ultramarathon. That's a big spectrum there. Yeah. Are there ways in which that predictive machine or that prediction machine serves us better or worse, depending upon either the type of task that we're doing and or the duration of the tasks that we're doing. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to set up how the brain works and then funnel it eventually into an ultra marathon perspective. But are there better or worse scenarios or how does it act differently, I guess, across some of those broad swaths of athletic tasks that we typically think about? 
Yeah. So uh, your audience may be familiar with ideas like the central governor concept, right? Uh, popularized by Tim Noakes. Actually, uh, it was talked about by a guy named Archibald Hill in the 1800s, yeah. who won a Nobel Prize yeah. in physiology yeah. in 1922. Um, so it's an old idea, right? People have been debating our our is our sense of effort and how far we can push our sense of fatigue controlled centrally or controlled by feedback coming from the muscles. Uh, Marcora has come up with a kind of variation on that. And when I look at those two theories, I, I see them both uh, integrating the perceptual part that I was just talking about. Uh, but I see a complete absence of this notion of prediction, which we know is so fundamental to uh, the control of our actions and our behavior. And so I think this is a very important missing component. Some of the phenomena that have been used in support, say, of the central governor concept or this idea that the brain is really regulating effort, that it's all happening there, um, in my uh in, in, in from my perspective, really are uh, supportive of this notion of just how important prediction is, right? So you take cyclists, you put them in an ergometer in the lab, you have them cycle and they're getting toward exhaustion, you have them reach, rinse their mouth with a carbohydrate solution, not take in any calories, and what does the brain do? It lets them go a little further. It says, you know, there's, there's food coming on board. I can, I'm not going to deplete myself. I can go a little bit better. There are a bunch of, of these kinds of uh, manipulations now in the literature. Some of the best are just manipulating feedback, right? Um, you can uh, play games where people's perception of how hard they're going and the feedback that they're getting are disconnected somewhat. I mean, we did an experiment in the lab years ago where we put people in the brain imaging machine and we had them reaching and manipulating in a kind of fine motor control task. And we their, their image of themselves that they were getting back through video was just subtly delayed. So there was a disconnect between what they were seeing in terms of feedback and what they were feeling they were doing. So they really had to lean heavily on prediction. And people are really good at that. We And they didn't notice a delay of up to an over a tenth of a second. So there's a lot of a lot of slop in the system, right? There's a lot of room for us to start to think about how can we manipulate feedback? How can we change the context in ways that allow people to go a little bit further, to push a little bit more into the, to the zone of discomfort and uncertainty? And I think there's going to be a lot of breakthroughs in that area in the coming years. You know, you mentioned some of Marcora's work, and I always kind of come back to one of the one of the phenomenons that he's described very well. And I, I can't remember if he was the original person to do this or not, but I'm going to give him credit anyway, because I've been trying to sure. cajole him to come on this podcast for a while. So maybe this will like butter him up a little bit. All right. But he termed it the perceived exertion endpoint interaction which I'm always fascinated with how some of these scientists like come up with these things and they describe it exactly how it is. But in essence, it, it, it describes the one of the ways that we use prediction to modulate effort is that while we are doing a task and in particular a maximum exertion task, so a 20 kilometer time trial or a 10 minute all out effort or a marathon or something like that, we're constantly drawing a line internally in our own heads between where our exertion is at at the present moment and what we predicted to be at the end. 
And we use that line and it's usually an upward slope. I'm right now at a rate of perceived exertion of eight. And at the end, I want to be at a 10. We're constantly using the slope of that line to adjust our intensity along the course of that task so that it doesn't exceed what we perceive to be our maximum tolerable exertion. And when I first read that, it made a lot of sense to me because you know, the long time runners will know that if you've run on a track for any appreciable amount of time, you can nail your splits without any sort of external assistance or cueing or times or a watch or anything like that, because you're just so in tuned with how long the task duration is and how hard you can, uh, how hard you can run. But that perceived exertion endpoint interaction as it relates to ultramarathon starts to break down because the duration between the point that you're currently at and this predictive point at the end is sometimes hours, maybe even days apart. And we've all been through the experience, at least in the ultramarathon world, where we have seen or been the runner that has dropped out at an, at an aid station and immediately regretted it because they realize that the situation that they're in is not as dire as they thought it was 10 or yeah. 10 or 15 minutes ago. And I'm wondering like how, like, how do you, how, like, how do you view that? How do you view this task regulation and this predictive model across mainly the duration spectrum, uh, given the fact that we're talking to an audience that has a law that has like really long duration events. Yeah. So I'm going to draw a little bit on my background as a scientist, but also a little bit on my background as someone who's done a lot of endurance events. Uh, probably on the light side compared to the the hardcore long distance ultras, I've I've been an up to 50k guy, and uh, and that was a sweet spot for me. So anytime you're making a prediction, right, the further out you're making that prediction, the uh, the less the more margin for error there's going to be, right? Think about the weather forecasts. We can look on our phones now and get a pretty good weather forecast. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, when I was a kid, the weather forecast seemed to be almost random, right? Um, now it's kind of amazing. I know that, you know, tomorrow I can plan a long training ride and it, the chance of, you know, thunder showers in the afternoon is X they're pretty amazing. It's gotten really good, right? We can forecast all sorts of things. We can forecast the Aurora when it, when we can expect to go out and see the Northern lights with reasonable accuracy. It's amazing, right? But the longer out those forecasts go, the less accurate they are. So it's the same thing, right? When I think of an ultra where you've got all of these variables coming into play, uh, fueling being a huge one, hydration being a huge one, right? Um, as well as the kind of black box stuff that happens in your mind when you're out there experiencing that kind of prolonged effort, there's a lot of things that can throw those predictions off. So what I like to think about in terms of thinking about this as a brain scientist is that there the brain is constantly making these predictions over different frames of time, right? I gave you an example early on, very mindless kind of uh, non-exciting example. That's what a lot of us do in the lab, right? Pretty basic stuff that we can control, <laughs> but you're constantly making these predictions just to control your movement smoothly. If you controlled your movements based on feedback, they'd be horribly her herky-jerky and so forth. Um, it's the prediction, right? That gets better and better as we acquire a skill. And that's why movements get smoother and more fluid as we acquire a skill. 
That's happening in the background. The longer term predictions as we get further out, start to have more of a conscious component as well, right? You start to doubt your predictions. You start to question your training. Those are all going to impact your performance. And and I think simply if we kind of bring it into the real world for people to take home, realizing that that is a natural byproduct of this long duration prediction process, if I can coin that term, right? Long duration prediction process, realize that- It's got to have an acronym. Yeah, we'll we'll come up with it after (laughs) the fact and I'll submit the trademark pretty soon so nobody else can steal it from us. But if we realize that that's going on and we kind of like normalize it to a certain extent during a race, I think that that's the real learning lesson there in terms of how to improve performance in that particular context. Is there anything else that that the athletes and the coaches out there that are listening should actually take away from that phenomenon in order to either counsel themselves or counsel their athletes as they're entering these events? Yeah, I think that uh, what you say is right on target, right? There are really two things going on. There is there is the information and the prediction that's arising from that information. And then there's your emotional and cognitive reaction to that, right? It's a lot like pain. You know, we know that the kind of activities that we're drawn to, and we could get into like that, right? (laughs) Who are these people? Who are we? The people who seek out these kind of experiences that put us in the discomfort zone regularly. But with pain, we've got two things going on. And there are two uh, relatively independent brain systems that are involved in this. One is processing the sensory information that's giving us the sensations. But then layered on top of that is the emotional system, the emotional reaction to that pain. If people start feeling that they're in an unsafe place, okay, and you look at their their, um, ratings of pain, they go through the roof, right? As opposed to if we are feeling we're, I've been here before, this is a, I know this is uncomfortable, right? The sensation is the same. How you interpret it is critical. I think we could normalize uh, that by by helping athletes develop comfort being in those places. And the same for these kind of uh, other things that start to go on when we start to me- really uh, let our let our minds start to get in the way of it. You know, you so you just opened up the Pandora's box of pain. And so I'd be remiss if we didn't spend the next like two hours, however long we've got this podcast book for talking about that, because I know it's a fascination of yours. And it's a fascination of not only mine, but all the silly, sadistic ultra runners that are like, like listening to this. And I was really struggling with a way to, to, to kind of kick this part of the conversation off. And so I, what I think I'll do is, is I'll use a recent meta-analysis that came out that I, that I shared with you that you're probably familiar, yeah. uh, familiar with, where they looked at studies where they had used something like a nerve block to block the feedback coming back from the muscles. And so mm-hmm. the person doing the task, usually a cycling task or something like that, because it's easy to you know manipulate people in that, uh, in that modality. They have no sensory feedback on what's going on at the level of the muscle, yet it did not reduce their perception of their exertion. They still had the same RPE essentially across these tasks. And when I, when I first, when I saw this and it wasn't that, that long ago, it was just a few months ago, I just kept thinking to myself, this is another thing that flies in the face of how I was originally trained as a coach where there was something going on at the level of the muscle fiber that was causing us to experience pain 
that was part of our experience of how we regulate effort. And so I want, I wanted to use that as a little bit of a backdrop of like, how do you go about explaining our relationship to pain and where it generates from and what are some of the things that influence it in a, in a endurance setting? Yeah. So this is a great topic and we all know that getting the best out of ourselves, uh, in the context of running or any of these other endurance activities requires getting comfortable with pain and being able to push through that and also being able to differentiate pain that accompanies effort from pain that accompanies injury. And that's a very important skill for athletes to develop. Pain inherently is subjective. Um, so I can't tell the level of pain you're experiencing and you can't tell the, the level of pain that I'm experiencing in any kind of objective way. You just have to rely on what I tell you, right? Um, you know, the state of the art, I run these, uh, multi-million dollar brain imaging centers and we have no tests that we can bring you in, put a, put you in our MRI machine, scan your brain and say, oh, his pain's a five on a scale of one to 10. Uh, there's no test for that. The state of the art in pain research is just simply a scale. It's like what you see when you go to the doctor's office, right? The little smiley face going to the, to the sort of recoiling <laughs> an and horror scale. face. It's an emoji yeah, that's scale. It. That's all we've got to offer, right? Um, kind of amazing when pain is such a, such a, a major thing that is devoted, you know, how much time and effort and money to trying to understand. So that's what I'm going to do at the next time I'm at an ultra is I'm just going to sit in an aid station with a little emoji scale and just, how, yeah, how, where do, you are you feel? At? how do you feel? Boom. Well, we'll just yeah. do a survey yeah. there. <laughs> no, I think that actually that's, that, that would be very interesting because you know, what's, what's remarkable about that. Uh, you hit on, hit on a great way to think about this for, for the audience people would give you that rating and then they'd pop a slam a gel and about five minutes later or 10 minutes later, they give you a completely different rating, even if they're putting out the same effort and, or more, right? I was on, an, on a long bike ride, about 80 miles yesterday, and I ha I didn't fuel it particularly well. And I had some of those low points and I looked, uh, you know, I felt pretty bad a few times. And I was like, Oh yeah, I know this. This is the underfield feeling where everything starts to feel horrible. And, you know, uh, the, the first thing that people experience usually is that things start to deteriorate mentally. They start yeah. to notice they're feeling a little down, right? They don't maybe want to be there. Or they're not as enthusiastic, uh, about holding the pace. So I think the important part here is again, what you mentioned, right? There's the sensation of the pain, there's not much we can do about that. We can bring elite athletes into the lab. And what we find is that they can tolerate more pain, but it's not because they don't feel the pain. It's that they can contextualize it in a way that allows them to move through it. They're not different than you and I um, in that regard, right? So when you block the pain from the muscle sensory feedback, people still are experiencing effort right? Because presumably that that's more evidence that it's being constructed in the brain or centrally. Um, and, and there, there are issues with those studies there, there, there's, uh, 
you know, the debate has been going on for a hundred yeah, years. Yeah, it, exactly. that, it's not over, but, um, we'll come, but trust I, me, we'll come back 20 years from now and like have a completely different perception of it because you and I, we've been through all the iterations. I mean, I've been through the cent central governor iteration and now this next permutation it. that Marcora came up with. And then five oh, years yeah. later, there'll be, a, there'll be another wrinkle in it. So of course it's always going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we still don't really have a great understanding of why uh, a mentally demanding day makes you feel fatigued. Yeah. It's it's we're there's some new data suggesting there's an accumulation of glutamate, which is neurotransmitter in the areas of the brain that have been overworked. That's also going on when you're trying to get the best out of yourself in an ultra. Right. So there's that side of things, too. What is trainable? is not the sensory side it is the uh reaction the emotional component the, the thinking component the feeling component of how you react to that pain and you and i and and your audience when we go out and do hard training sessions we are training ourselves to get comfortable in that place we're, we're training our muscle fibers we're training our cardiovascular system we place so much attention to that right what is, now we can measure lactate mobily i mean it's amazing we've got all this data right but without the without the mental side of things it's not really that important people will say you know well what what is the best training program are you a polarized guy or are you an interval guy and i i always tell them and i'm dead serious it's the one you'll stick with right yeah. um you're these these training programs are are only as good as the application of them but there's a huge mental component to uh being able to get comfortable with the discomfort and that's what we can learn and we get that through our training ideally i, I wanted to get your further a little bit of further perspective on this because it my, in my experience when i work with athletes they go through two fairly distinctive phases with relationship to their relationship with pain. And the first one is just tolerance. You have an athlete that has probably never worked out before, or you get somebody who's, you know, just starting an exercise program. They just learn to tolerate more discomfort, right? A higher mm -hmm. rating of perceived exertion, higher levels of exertion. And then they train for three or four, maybe six years, kind of that medium time frame. And then they move on to regulation. So they're able to regulate these higher levels of pain to a certain degree. And the mastery of that regulation ends up becoming the separator of performance. And we, we see this all the time when we try to translate lab data into real world performance is there's a very asymptotic relationship between the total amount of time that you've trained for when you scale it out to years and your mm -hmm. physiological improvement. We can bring somebody into our lab and you know, they'll improve for a year, maybe two years, maybe three years. And by the fourth year, it's like the, you know, the error of the instrumentation is, you know, the is way is fourfold different than the, and than the amount that they're actually improving yet, yet we continue to see improvements in performance, particularly in the measured events, 10,000 meters marathon and things like that. And, and so there's something going on besides the physiology of it, right? And I've always theorized, and not just me, a lot of other people have theorized that the way that they can regulate their effort, and as part of that, the way that they can kind of regulate the pain that they can tolerate or the effort that they mm -hmm. can tolerate as part of that separator. I, I was wondering if in your experience, have you seen that same trajectory of 
athletic development in terms of people's relationship with pain where it changes during the kind of the time frame of their athletic time span. Yeah, I think what you're saying is great. This is an example where brain science and exercise science can be so wonderfully complementary, like hand in a glove, right? Because in the exercise science world, you can you can really measure things like a person's VO2 max, and you, you can measure their maximal output in power and, and really quantify that objectively. Again, on the on the pain side, the effort side, it's all subjective, right? Mm-hmm. So if you see that someone's VO2 max is not going up, right, that their fitness indicators as measured in an exercise science lab are asymptotic, like you're saying, and yet they're getting better. What's going on? What else is, would, what else is there? <laughs> there isn't a lot of other stuff, right? You know, um, I re- my favorite book about that I used a lot, actually, when I was training uh, and running was a book by Jack Daniels. And there's a quote in there somewhere. Um, and, and Daniels is such a thoughtful guy. And he was saying, you know, here's, here are some ways to differentiate whether you or your athletes are, are, are getting better because you're getting fitter versus just able to tolerate more suffering. Right. Um, there is something to be said for that. And, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of competing in a number of sports. I was a runner, then I was a triathlete in the 90s, uh, cross-country skier and cyclist now. And in all those sports, I've also had the pleasure of knowing some pretty elite athletes and having conversations with them about this. And to the one, the uh, it, none of them report that it gets any easier, right? That right. it gets any less painful. You just go faster for for that. So, learning to tolerate that, learning to get comfortable, right? If I bring you to the lab and we uh, inflict some pain on you, right? Which we've done in my lab. You know, one of the classic ways is putting your arm in a bucket of ice water yeah. and ha- seeing how long you can do it. I mean, very low tech, right? Yeah. We've got other other devious ways of, of inflicting pain on people, but this is an easy one to think about. You know, um, we can we can really quantify how long you can tolerate something like that and we can show what kind of variables really affect that and there are a number of things that will really decrease your ability to tolerate that one is being sleep deprived Mm. another is uh anything that invokes anxiety or stress right so those are two things to be thinking about when you're trying to get the most out of yourself in your training or in your racing right can you are there things you could be doing to to decrease um, to decrease those kind of other things? So another another interesting one is um, we all kind of have this this limited capacity to pay attention to something, right? What did and you when say? You're, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I <laughs> fell for it too. How many times, right? You, if you do it again, I'll probably take the bait. Um, yeah, I'm a little slow like that, but you know. Uh, there's a, we have a limited bandwidth, right? Yeah. If you're trying to get the most out of yourself and you're racing hard, you want that bandwidth devoted to everything you can do to move yourself toward that finish line more quickly. Now, um, you, uh, if you put someone in a situation where you tie that bandwidth up in these kind of contexts of pain, 
one of the things that can happen is that, you know, they, they, their ability to uh, persevere through the pain can be affected. Okay. So how can we lower our cognitive reserve or, 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 or not lower, but maximize our cognitive reserve? How much of that reserve can we devote to the important task at hand? Right. How can we make it feel more comfortable and less stressful? Little things can make a huge difference here. Um, sleep is, is uh, something that we can try to take some degree of control over, although um, probably not the night before an event for many athletes, but we can, we can build up toward that, right? We can practice experiencing the kind of discomfort we're going to do on race day. Um, and, you know, we can, we can really take advantage of, of some of these things that we know in the lab modulates that perception of how you're experiencing the pain. Well, and I'll add a third one in there, a fourth one. I can't remember how many mitigation strategies you just went through going back to, we can only pay attention for so long, Scott. Um, in terms, it's race season. Everybody's thinking about race execution stuff right now. One of the things that constantly comes up that I harp on a tremendous amount and what you just, the dialogue that you just went through really emphasizes why that this is important. Everything for, in your race day strategy needs to be as automated as possible. As little brain cycles as you can devote to when do I take my gel? How, you know, am I going to change shoes here or there? Where's the next aid station? Like all of these little things that we don't appreciate how much they actually affect the end race performance is illustrated really well by these cognitive load types of experiments that you and your colleagues have done over years where they intentionally like you know, reduce or they intentionally uh, stress the cognitive load before a task. And, you know, lo and behold, the task performance is usually, usually, if not always worse after that, after that stressful period, which on the surface seems benign because it's not like you're doing a time trial to exhaustion right before another time trial to exhaustion. You're actually, you're asking people to match up words and colors and things like that, that don't seem very physically demanding yet. It has a market impact on performance. Yeah, so uh, that that's so well put, and uh, I think an, another thing I'd like to add here that is that is an actionable thing, and may may actually be something that many ultra runners uh, don't think so much about, which is the warm up that you do. So um, I know uh, when I when I was competing in running. I, depending on the race, I had race duration, the event, I had different warm-up strategies. So if it was a 5k on the track, it was a very different protocol than it was if it was a 50k on a trail, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that your athletes who tend to gravitate toward these longer events, they might use the first mile of the event as their warm-up. Now, here's something interesting. There have been some good studies looking at preconditioning pain right? What can people tolerate more pain if you've given them some, some brief, but, but intense doses of the kind of pain that they're going to be experienced in the actual test right before the test. And the answer is yes, you can precondition kind of reset that thermostat a little bit over uh, about how you're going to respond to the pain um, by getting a little taste of it. So I do a lot of bike racing now, and in the bike racing world, the warmups tend to be a little more structured, yeah. I would say, than they are in the distance running world. We go out and we, we really do some pretty hard efforts, right, before a race in, in most cases. 
we think about that is getting the the metabolism up and going, getting the cardiovascular system going, moving moving up and down uh, through the different heart rate zones and stuff, and that's all happening. But what's happening in parallel is that we're preconditioning the pain. Mm-hmm. I completely believe this, and so I think uh, ultra runners might want to think a little bit about that. Now, obviously, you can't precondition the pain that starts to set in when you be grinding at it for a bunch of hours. And I'm not (laughs) suggesting that, but I am suggesting that it might be worth experimenting a little bit with some hard, intense efforts, even before a long event to really start to get your brain ready for this is what's going to happen. Right? So what I was going to ask you that's related to that is, is that phenomenon the same dependent upon if the exertion is being dictated by intensity or by volume, because those are two very different relationships. And I'm going to say types of pain. I don't know if that's the right vocabulary, but we all know that an 800 meter race, which everybody, you know, considers one of the hardest races in the world to actually run the, the, the pain that you experience during that is markedly different then at the end of the Leadville Trail 100, where you're hauling up power line at a snail's pace, it's not very fast, it's not very intense, yet it's, it's quote unquote painful. Nonetheless, are those types of preconditioning pain strategies, would you imagine that they're, that they're the same given it's more of a duration dependent experience that we're having? I think it's a great question. I um, I don't see a good way to um, give yourself a, a preconditioning taste of Go the kind 50K of before 50k. <laughs> yeah, we were having this conversation the other day and, and coming up with ways to think about uh, different types of pain. Pain has all these qualitative dimensions, right? Um, when I worked in the lab, I worked a lot with people who had chronic pain, uh, like phantom limb pain, who. Yeah and amputees, right? And we would do these assessments. Is the pain burning? Is it throbbing? Is it gnawing? A lot of those dimensions also are applicable to what we're talking about here. The 800 meters is horrible, right? Um, you know, I used to do those uh, for my speed workouts on the track and the, you know, but so racing, bad. it's a, a whole, so a whole other world. So yeah, bad. no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And the first, you know, 600 meters is often fantastic. And then, and then the bear gets on the back and it's, it's pretty awful, but, um, but very different than what you're going to experience in an ultra. I think the the qualitative sense of those pain uh, experiences are different. Surely, there's more inflammatory pain, and in, uh, we have in our in our pain detection sensory system, the nociceptive system. There are different sensors in your body that detect different things, including acidity and inflammation, uh, along with pressure, which is kind of mechanical force, thermal uh, burn, and so forth. Right. In a long event, you're you're in the Leadville, you've got to climb the power line, um, you're going to have a lot of inflammatory stuff going on in the body by that point, surely, right? As well as mechanical and so forth. Um, having, having preconditioned yourself during the warm-up, I think it's an open question whether short bouts of intensity might be useful for kind of setting that thermostat. I think it's an open question. We have no data to address that at all. A really cool concept because once again, harping back on my coach education that's going back you know, over two decades now, the way that you described why we warm up is 
to the dotted I and the cross T exactly how I was trained. We want to warm up because we want to increase blood flow and we want to get a little bit of lactate going and then you lubricate the joints and the muscle temperature is higher. All of these very classic physiological phenomenons that are going on that are supposed to improve the performance that is going to, that is going to follow the warm up. But we never, and I can, I can profess to this, at least in my education, which I would consider relatively robust, never thought once about this preconditioning aspect that, uh, uh, that, that you mentioned yet. It is a very real phenomenon now that we've kind of done the experiments behind it. And it also makes a lot of sense. You know what else it'll do? It'll really shake up your competition. <laughs> if you start, if you start doing, if you start doing strides off the starting line of your twenty-four hour race, right? Like, like you're going out for the the uh, Halloween ten k. That's going to shake that shit up, right? Now we're, now we're blending psychology into the mix as well, so we'll have Absolutely. the confluence of everything. Yeah. That's so brilliant. They're going to think you're either completely deranged and they're going to blow, or or you're a real badass. But <laughs> you know, if they ask you what's going on after the race and you did really well, you can tell them. You know, it's all in the warm up. There you go, all in the warm up. I uh, I increased my pain tolerance or whatever the clinical version of that is during during the warm up itself, or I preconditioned. Uh, preconditioned they'll they'll myself only laugh to- once. Yeah. There you go. That's true. That's true. Okay. I want to get your thoughts on something else. Um, one, one of the things that's always been a fascination of mine during the course of my coaching career and the longtime listeners of this podcast are probably rolling their eyes right now because half of the content that I produce is just satiating my own curiosity. And this is definitely one of them is the time course for adaptation. And we put all of this, we put all of this effort into how long does it take mitochondrial biogenesis to happen. And if we impose a strength training stimulus, when are we actually going to see the, the, the bones get stronger and the tendons and ligaments to get stronger and things like that. And we have fairly good literature to back up on to say, okay, listen, you know, these are for the most part, chronic processes, right? They're not happening on the course of an hour or a day or even several days. They're several months, if not several, several years in, in the making. What can we say about our relationship to pain and how humans adapt to either this preconditioning piece that you were just talking about or chronic exposure to it or just our relationship with it? Is there an equivalent that we can make that would speak to this time course for adaptation? Yeah, I think it's probably a twofold process. And I think there are fast adaptations and slow adaptations. And uh, I love I love the way you've described uh describe this in in from the your perspective which is exercise science so we all know or or many of us know the experience we go to the weight room right a lot of us go reluctantly it's good to go we should go we know we should go we go there and we 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 lift right and uh we we kind of get a sense of, of what our current base level strength is and then after like a week right once the dawn sort of subsides, right? Uh, all of a sudden you get this huge bump in your yeah. strength. Like, whoa, what's that? Well, it, what it isn't are those things you were mentioning before. What it is, is better ability to recruit the motor units, right? So that yeah. those signals coming out of your mot- motor cortex, volleying down your spinal cord and out into your peripheral muscles to those, to those muscle fibers, all of a sudden you're recruiting more of your muscle mass and you get huge bump in your strength gains. And then after that, right, 
once you've once you've kind of harvested that, then you make progress because you're changing the muscle physiology, right? And that's the slow thing. And I think that's a great analogy for what's going on in our pain tolerance. I think that we we see uh, new runners, and I remember being a new runner. You know, uh, I'm 58. I ran my first uh, 10K race probably, you know, a little over 40 years ago. I was in my late teens, late bloomer for running. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, why would anyone do this to themselves? This is horrible, <laughs> right? It was terrible. But uh, I went and did it again the next weekend, right? Because our memory for pain is also an interesting mm. thing. It fades pretty quickly, which is, you know, why? Yeah, anyway. Um, you get that adaptation pretty quickly in new runners. They start to realize they can go a little further with less timidity than than they thought. But then I also think there's a long-term thing that we're all kind of experiencing. We can probably all reflect on that time when we went a little further than we had before. One of my professional cycling friends uh, says, you know, there's that threshold for pain and you, you go right up against it and you're racing and you go, and then you learn that there's another place you can go just beyond that, right? And I think that requires time to get to and experience and getting, again, this is, you know, right out of the pain research, right? Pain is a not about muscle, is not about physical damage. Pain is a warning signal to prevent you from harming yourself. As you get more comfortable and you understand, you know, I've been here before, I'm not gonna injure myself doing this. I'm not going to kill myself. I'm not going to have a cardiac arrest. You can go a little further and a little further, but that requires time, right? And you've got to dose that out. So uh, if you're not doing intensity work, you should be, right? If you're just doing long runs, you've got to get that intensity work in no matter what the distances of your events. I believe that very strongly. Um and you've also got to get comfortable being in that place of that that gnawing long-term pain of of climbing power line in the Leadville. <laughs> I love that you mentioned power line. Everybody loves that climb. You know how this actually shows up uh, from a practical standpoint with the people that I work with, this short-term, long-term piece of it is that is with athletes that have gone through a collegiate track and field and cross-country program because they have been to the places beyond the places that yeah. they thought that they could that they could go speaking to your professional cyclist friend because of the environment that they're in right they're in a team of people they're all pushing themselves really hard they're pushing themselves beyond what they would be able to push themselves if they were just out there individually yeah. and i actually coach those athletes not so much from a program well from a programming standpoint too but that's neither here nor there but from how i describe how to you know, how to measure your effort and things like that. I describe mm -hmm. that a whole lot differently with athletes that have that experience because yeah. they have the, the whole range right? versus athletes that don't have that experience because they, they don't know what they don't know. Right. So you got to oh, kind of yeah. take them there first and then explain what the range is versus the athletes that have already been there. You don't have yeah. to go through that whole first process. They've gone through this kind of like two phase process that you mentioned earlier. You know who comes to mind when you're talking about this are people who grew up as swimmers. Oh, God. Swimmers, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, 
that system starts very young, yeah. right? Yeah. And it is a grinder full yeah. of uh, hard intervals where these kids learn to tolerate pain. And when you look, and I, I'm kidding around a little bit, but you know, if you look at when, when swimmers transition to other things, they transition to running, cycling, triathlon, not only do they have a big engine, right? A lot of them, but man, they've got the mindset, right? Because they spent the last 15 years grinding out interval workouts. It's all interval workouts. Oh yeah. It's all interval workouts all the time and volume. It's like the best. I mean, it's the best example of smashing together volume and intensity all the time, all the time. <laughs> all the time. And you're not going to, you're not going to break yourself because you're in a relative microgravity environment, right? Yeah. So there's really no, your knee's not going to stop you. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's pivot a little bit. Cause I kind of want to get to, to really brass tacks here. And I think that this might be a good transition and you can <clears throat> plug your new business yeah. venture all you want to. Cause I imagine <laughs> you're going to get these people, you're going to get these people in the door because I think that this is it's, it's topical and it's a big performance enhancer. So this audience is going to be training for summer events. Yeah. They're doing all the physical stuff. Some of their hay or a lot of their hay might already be in the barn, right? Depending upon when their event actually is what they can, what can they do from a practical standpoint from your experience, from your wheelhouse to become better later in the race when pain and all, and a lot of this neurobiology and this neurology starts to become more of a performance factor for them, given the fact that we're doing long duration races, is there anything that they can consciously do in training to help modulate that and or anything that they can do during the actual races to, to improve their performance? Well, a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is something that I think uh, they shouldn't bother with. And, and this is probably going to stir up some controversy with people, but I'm going to put it out there. You know, I think sitting down and working through book uh, workbook exercises about mental performance and positive mindset for competition and stuff is probably a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And here's why I think that. Um, one thing that we know about how human beings learn is that it's very hyper-specific and context dependent. So uh, if you want to learn a piece of information, if you want to learn a new skill, uh, you need to do that thing. And you uh, that carries over to our running. It, we should be practicing these mental skills that we want to have available to us on race day while we're training, not in the evening, right? Use your evening to foam roll or stretch or whatever. That's great. <laughs> Eat a ton of food because that's really good. But when you're training, you need to realize that uh, two things are going on. And I'm, I'm kind of separating those in this kind of false dichotomy, but there's your, you're doing the physical training, but the mental training is happening as well. And I think we put all our attention on the physical side. I'm going to run these intervals and I'm going to do them at this pace. And this is going to train my, uh, this system and that system, energy systems. That's fantastic. But I think athletes would do really well to put some conscious processing time into thinking about what are the mental skills that I need to execute this training well? And how do those skills how can I improve those skills so I have them on race day? Let me give you an easy example. Um, there's a big difference between an interval-based training program 
and a kind of polarized based training program, right? Or between a threshold oriented training program and a polarized training program. There's differences physiologically and people are debating and arguing and, and we've seen this cycle go around in the in the history of running for a long time. It's fascinating to me. I've been around a long time. We've had a lot of those uh, debates on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lively topic. I think debate, debate is a good thing. Um, and I've lived through a couple of those different things through Arthur Lydiard yeah. was the guy oh, yeah. who guided my training yeah. when I, when I was early on yeah. and uh, you know, but, but look, um, where was I going with this? Oh, attention, right? Yeah, I'm having a little, the brain guys <laughs> having a little lapse in his attention. I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of importance here would be uh, to think about what the mental skills are to execute the different kinds of training you're doing, right? This, the mental skills that you need to execute an interval day are very different than the mental skills you need to execute a proper distance day. And actually devoting some conscious attention to that when you're getting ready to go out the door and when you're in the middle of it, whatever that is, to tune into that and not not to tune out, but really tune in. How does this feel? Now I'm in the the second or third hour of my long, you know, endurance run. This is what it's going to be like when I do a race, any kind of race simulation stuff that you can fit into that, right? Uh, maybe you decide to put some in intensity efforts into those long runs. Not enough that you you end up, you know, needing two, two weeks to recover from your, your long training run, but enough so that you taste what it's going to be like to move at race pace on tired on a tired body and a tired mind fuel it like you're going to do for race day race simulation doesn't just mean simulating the physical experience it means simulating some part of the mental experience as well so i think that's critically important and i think uh I think a lot of coaches maybe don't pay as much attention to that as they do to the to the physiology physiology of these things. But look, we all know without the mental component, you can be at your fittest, right? And you can drop out of a race, you can underperform. The mental component to me is the base of the performance period pyramid. We often treat it like up here. And if you read books about training in all these different sports, a lot of times it's like the last chapter. Oh, and then there's the mental side and, uh, you know, do this, do that. But we can do better, right? We actually do have a, a lot that we do understand about the brain and how it relates to behavior. And it's, I think there, the reason I moved into, uh, moved out of academia, right? And writing papers for the 10 other people that are interested in what I do in that world, which is the nature of being a scientist in academia, is because I see so much room for application, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about uh, being able to do that. So cerebralperformance.com, I'll plug, plug the new endeavor is, uh, where that is going to be the clearinghouse for doing that, uh, working on a book proposal now that is going to start to really put the neuroscience into that. Uh, whereas it's, it's been largely absent, even in the sports psychology world, yeah. there's a lot of touching on the brain as well. We know this stuff is coming from the brain. We can do better, right? We actually do know something about the biology, now 
I think what I'm taking, the biggest thing that I'm taking away from that, that I'll implement with athletes is the specificity side of it or the hyper specificity side of it, because we, we kind of think of physiology, like physiology is physiology is physiology. You have aerobic physiology, you can kind of translate up and down the intensity spectrum to, to, yeah. to a large degree. You know, fitness is fitness is the classic phrase that gets thrown around. But when you're talking about specific cognitive or mental skills to deploy, this, that specificity actually matters a lot. It might matter more than the physical specificity. You know, in trail running, we talk about physical specificity in terms of elevation gain and elevation loss. And are you going to use poles and how steep is the terrain and how technical mm -hmm. is the terrain like that? Those components of specificity. This might be a case where the mental skills that you apply and the things that you do in, in that realm might need to be more specific than the specificity that we're applying on the physical side. That's kind of what I'm taking from you. Am I interpreting that correctly? I think you're interpreting it exactly as it was intended. And I think it is the most fertile ground where the big improvements are gonna come from. Look, if you look at elite athletes, for the most part, they're all doing the same yeah, thing. They really might be have a yeah, really yeah they might have a favorite workout, yeah. right, that they go yeah. to and things. And I can speak to this from, you know, the different sports that I've done in the endurance realm. They're all doing the same thing. The differentiator is going to come from this brain side of things, right? And we don't just have to talk about the brain anymore, like, oh, and then there's the brain in, in a kind of metaphorical way. There's a whole huge world of neuroscience. There are a lot of mysteries. I'll be the first to admit, we have far more that we don't know about the brain than that we do know, but we do know some things. And this hyper-specificity thing is enormous. You know, talk to anybody who studies how we learn a motor skill yeah. and what they'll tell you is none of it transfers. It's actually a huge frustration, right? One of my interests in my research was rehabilitation. What can we do for people who've had neurological injuries or disease? Are there things we can train them on that will then be transferable to help them improve something that, that is they have a deficit in? And it's really frustrating because there's not a lot of transfer, right? And I think these mental skills are the same. We've got to start incorporating these in a deliberate way and in a hyper-specific way if we want to get the most out of ourselves when we're in the competition. It's not something to invent on the fly on the race day. And it's not something to sit at home, you know, filling out some worksheets about. That's great. It's better than nothing, but we can do better. I, I really appreciate that. I'm going to give you the last word on something because <clears throat> I have... A lot of physiology-based colleagues, and I'll raise my hand, I'm probably in this cohort as well, and I'm sure you've heard from these people kind of like ad nauseum. And they listen to the sports side and the neuro side and everything. They say, yeah, 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 I get it. But yet still, we're not Jedis in Star Wars. Star Wars is one of my favorite, you know, my, my kind of my favorite entertainment things. I'll absorb any of their content whenever it kind of comes out. And we can't fly through the air using just our minds. There has to no. be some sort of physiological grounding to it. So you spoke to this a little bit earlier. What do you like? What do you say to that? Like you put mental skills at the bottom of the pyramid, but yet there are a lot of people that say, listen, you still have to have yeah. a raw physiological capacity in order to transport yourself via your feet or your bike or in the pool or wherever from point A to point B under a certain period of time, there's still some physiological underlying mechanism that kind of has to transpire. 
like what would you what do you say to those people that kind of come back with the hey we're not jedis and we can't teleport ourselves <laughs> yeah uh well first i will say some of my best friends are exercise physiologists so uh <laughs> and uh i've sat on a number of exercise science dissertation committees and and uh if it loved that and in all seriousness um i would agree right we can't we if you're not fit you're not going to think yourself through uh, the uh, Western States 100, right? There's no fake in it when race day comes around. And we're focusing on the long stuff, but it's equally true in the short stuff. Yeah. You've got to do the work, right? What I'm saying is that if the mental component's not there, you're also not going to perform, right? I think it's, I, I put it as of equal importance. And, and I see it as the base of the pyramid. And here's why I see it that way because you're not going to be able to to execute the physical work you need to do to tune those other systems unless you've got that solid foundation under you. I think it's the first piece of the puzzle, but we often treat it as an afterthought, like it's just going to take care of itself. And it might do that a little bit, right? But just like you're saying, doing the mental stuff and focusing on that is not going to take care of the physiological stuff the physiological stuff and executing those ex the the workouts and things is might take care of the mental stuff but we can do a whole lot better and you're not going to train well unless the mental side is solid right i think there's so much room for improvement there uh at all levels from beginner to olympic right just not the not just the elites right which is what we, a lot of times elites. we try to confine this to like you you alluded to it earlier right the difference between winning a race, getting the gold medal and getting a bronze medal or no medal is, is likely in a lot of cases, just the difference in mental skills. That's not the only place where it makes a difference. It makes a difference up and down the chain. Especially if you are a person who enjoys the experience of getting the most out of your training yes. and, and out of your, out of your competition, given whatever other things are going on in your life. And this is a big part of what I want to do. I want to make this information available to the non-Olympic athletes, right? Olympic athletes, elite, elite caliber, you know, world tour cyclists who are riding the Giro right now, or, or the Tour de France, Many of those teams have a mental performance specialist incorporated, although you'd be surprised how many don't. Um, so even there, there's room for improvement. But I'd like to make this as available to people as uh, having a coach to write workout schedules has become. And you and I have been around for a while. That's not been, been something that was available to a lot of amateur athletes in our kinds of sports even in the 80s, right? It was something that the elites got to have, but then this whole thing developed through things like CTS and 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 independent coaches, you know, early coaches like Joe Friel and my friend Hank Lang and so forth. Um, and now we're able to have this kind of informed way of going about things based on science and information and the guidance of a coach, right? And you know what? I love seeing that develop. And this is one of the big reasons why I wanted to bring you on, because I know that you're trying to do this. I had another colleague of mine, Justin Ross, on the podcast maybe four or six weeks ago, who's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to crack the code in the commercial space, right? And not not to get too, you know, business on everybody, but to allude to what we did, you know, 20 years ago is we tried to crack the code on the commercial space within endurance coaching and more of the physiological side. Granted, you know, there were professional athletes that had coaches, but... 
It was pretty much limited to the professional athletes. Bringing this into the other realms of sports performance, psychology, mental skills, nutrition, and things like that, I've loved to see that development because it mirrors my experience when I first got into the when I first got into the this world where there was no marketplace. One day, <laughs> and then right. the next day there is a marketplace. So you're at the you know you're at the cutting edge or the bleeding edge of that literally right now. And I think you're going to crush it, man. I, I, we're going to come back five years from now and you're going to have 30, you know, people underneath you and some sort of like novel structure or whatever. I'm going to love to see that development. Well, thank you for being so supportive and having me on. And uh, I'll, I'll be happy if I can see some of this uh, work that we've been doing for, you know, a long time in the neurosciences have, a, have an impact in this arena that is so important to me. Well, I will have links in the show notes to everything. I encourage everybody to go and check that out. Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with in terms of like pearls of wisdom or nuggets that they can kind of take into their training tomorrow? Yeah, I think uh, don't neglect the the uh, focus on the mental side and start to really reap the benefits of the physical training you're doing by devoting some energy while you're doing it to developing and sharpening uh, those tools as well. Um, and good luck in your season. Enjoy what you're doing because that's ultimately what most of us are after, right? At some level. Well put, well put. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And more importantly, thank you for what you have done and what you've contributed to the space because it's made a big impact on me. And thank you for what you are going to do because I know good things are going to come out of it. Thank you so much. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Dr. Fry for coming on the podcast today and enlightening us about how our perception of pain is actually generated and how we view perception of effort, where it comes from. And I hope that each and every one of the listeners out there can take something from the content within this podcast and directly take it into your training or into a race. Personally, I got so incredibly inspired by the content within this podcast that I decided to do a follow-up podcast that will be released next week with two of our coaches, coaches AJW and Neil Palace. We are going to discuss what we took away from this podcast and what we are doing with our athletes differently based on this newfound information or maybe even information that we were just reminded of. Nonetheless, if you found this information interesting, please share this podcast with your training partners and your friends. There's no better way to tell your friends that you care about their performance and about their training than sharing the knowledge contained within this podcast. As always, this podcast is brought to you without any sponsors or any ads of any in any way, shape or form. And that is that is solely for the purpose of making sure that the content is as unbiased and as unfiltered as possible. I hope you appreciate that long-standing commitment that I've had to the listeners out there. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm-hmm.